to a meaningful marketplace. I'm Sarah Massoni from Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center, where I've helped countless dreamers launch their new food products. It's the science of taking a food delight from the kitchen to mass manufacturing and still keeping its great taste. That's what I do. I've been called the woman with the million-dollar palate, although I haven't tried to cash that check yet. Listen in weekly for real-life stories. Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce and author of Preservation Pantry, modern canning from root to top and stem to core. I love inspiring business owners to get started on their journeys, encouraging folks to be part of their local community, and I'm excited to help business owners tell their stories. Join us as we explore the journeys of women entrepreneurs in the food and beverage industry. Hello and welcome to Missoni and Marshall, a meaningful marketplace. Thanks for joining us as we hear stories of female food entrepreneurs. We're glad you joined us today. We're here with stories of hope and inspiration for all of our food friends out there. This is Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce. And Sarah Missoni of Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center. So Sarah Masoni, we got to hang out this week. We sure did. We did a uh, Instagram live over on my uh, Spicy Marshall Instagram. And Sarah yeah. and I made hot sauce with all of her garden ingredients that we've been mm-hmm. talking about on the show for so yes. long. And Sarah, did you eat any of the sauce since I saw it? Absolutely. You? Yes, we did. We ate it on all sorts of things and it's really tasty. What do you think about it? You were into it? Actually, I thought it was delicious. I didn't even think it was too hot, even though we put all those super hot peppers in there. I didn't think it was too hot either. I thought it was awesome. Jerk really loved it. I think he ate that whole half a jar that you gave me when we had Thai food that evening. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Yeah, so it was really good. Good. Did Michael like it? That's my big question. He did. He liked it, but he's... He's particular. He eats certain types of sauces on certain types of food. So oh, he yeah. had he had that on some uh, pork that we had, and he thought it was perfect. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Well, we um, were giving away a couple of the jars, and we did have somebody claim one at the farmer's market, but we still have two. So if anybody uh, donates to the Chesa family fundraiser, um, you can get to that through our Marshall's Hot Sauce Um Instagram. Uh, we have a link there and we have two more bottles to give away and you can come get those for me at the farmer's market. If you shout out to, to Judy, Judy said she wants one. Oh, so yeah. Judy, you better go see Sarah next Saturday. Oh, let's do it. I, we, I have them two left, so come get them. And I did have a little bit of food news. We did want to give people other ways to support some of our community members. So um, we have, there's a lovely local shop owner who's doing a fundraiser to pivot their bakery um, into a culinary bookstore and cooking space. So that's Robin from Vivine Kitchen in uh, in the Hollywood area. And you can find their link on their Instagram or, or their website. And I'll put one on our Masonian Marshall page. So if you can donate to that, that would be awesome. And then also um, the Portland LaDames group is doing, if you're a women-owned restaurant, we are offering to build a garden bed with some local farmers and um, we're partnering um, with Side Yard Farm and some other great people. So if you have a space, you want a garden bed and it would help your restaurant, you can go to the LaDames PDX website or you can message me um, and I can give you more information about it. Wow, that's pretty cool that you ladies are doing that. 
Well, it's super cool. We want to help people out. We have this green garden initiative to, um, you know, help introduce farming and agriculture into our urban settings. And so we have the opportunity. We did, we raised some money and we want to pass it on to someone in the community. So if anyone's interested, we'll come build you a garden bed so you can grow cool local food. Excellent. All right. Well, I am super excited about our guest today. So I'm going to introduce. Uh, today we are joined by Cheryl Cheryl Walker Walkerhauser. <laughs> Walkerhauser. Walkerhauser. I practiced, and then here I am. Just uh, I think I drank too much coffee before we started the show. <laughs> so you drink any coffee? I chugged it right before, right when I was off camera. Oh, I saw a fancy <laughs> bottle of water that you I were do. Drinking. I both. I always have to have my beverages while we record. But we have Cheryl here, and Cheryl is the owner of Pix Patisserie in Portland, Oregon. She is a pastry book author, award-winning champagne list curator, and overall pastry magician. Cheryl. She's famous, too. You're famous, like... and you're here, and we're so glad. <laughs> She's in that... Portland. <laughs> here I am. Welcome Yay. to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we want to help uh, connect people to you. So what's the best way for people to find you on social media? Uh, at Pix Patisserie. All one word, Pix Patisserie. Yep. P-I-X. P-I-X-P-A-T-I-S-S-E-R-I-E.com. That's my email. Well, we'll make sure to link you in so people can find you and follow along on your journey. And uh, before we talk about your history of how you got to be where you are, uh, let's talk about the here and now, because usually you run this very bustling shop, uh, restaurant, bar, all in one. It's cool. Are you open back up right now? Tell us where you're at with that. Uh, We are exactly where we were 18 months ago with the closed restaurant. Um, with a little exception. So yeah, we closed and I was just doing takeout um, and takeout birthday cakes. Cause you know, even though it's COVID, everybody still has a birthday. So people still wanted their cakes. Um, yeah. And I'm just going to be on the cautious side. I didn't want to get sick. I didn't want my one employee to get sick because we were 22. Now we're like one and a half. And um, I had the idea that I had a couple years ago back when we were having a problem finding staffing to get a vending machine. Uh, and this was in May of last year. And so I got a vending machine and I put it outside the front door and named it the Pixomatic. And we just put all of our desserts in there. And that way I could actually go home at a decent hour and people could still buy our desserts. And I was like, well, this is just great. This is great. Because if I can just sell $100 a day, I can pay the mortgage and I can get some sleep and it'll be fine. And the first day... We had the Pixomatic out there. It made $400. And I was like, what? what? <laughs> and then the next day, it made $1,000. Oh. And then the next, we, we got in the paper. And then next weekend, it made $4,000 in a single day, which was just Whoa. blowing my mind because, I mean, that's how much we would make on a busy Saturday with, with a staff of like 10 people running the restaurant. So... Yeah, I mean, so and that this is where I still am. We did open up in August with some events. We had Flamenco Friday and um, a movie night, and they all sold out every single one for the for the month. Um, but it was a lot of work because I found myself again. We had to, you know, now where movie night used to be free, we just walked on in. We had 
tickets because we want to know how many people are going to be there. We had a seating chart. This is where you're going to sit. This is where you're going to sit. And it was a lot of work. And I was like, no, I can't do this. <laughs> and then the Delta cases started coming back. And I'm just like, no, we're going back to Pixomatic. <laughs> and well, here I am. I have to say that your Pixomatic is such a wonderful idea. And I have visited it with my daughter quite a few times because not only can you get the most beautiful, wonderful pastries that you make there, but you have all these really fun things in there. So she wants to go there all the time because vending machines are her favorite. And I don't know if you guys have seen on my Instagram, but her and I actually built a vending machine out of cardboard and toilet paper rolls. And then we used saran wrap on the front and put, you know, just like things that we had in the house and that we would push through. But I think she was really inspired by your vending machine because you have things like rubber chickens and whoopee cushions and all kinds of really fun stuff in there. Yeah. You know, the whole point of this vending machine, well, obviously it was to sell my desserts uh, in my sleep, literally. Uh, But also to make people smile because I don't know if you can remember back that far. People were like, scared, depressed, lonely, everything. And so you could come down to Pixomatic and you could press the little buttons and spin the thing around and, okay, there's Amelie cake, there's a creme brulee. Oh, and there is a bat mustache or there is, you know, a little tinfoil cat for your hat to keep them safe. You know, just the most random things. But my point was make you smile. Just like, maybe it's only for five minutes, but for five minutes, you smiled, you had a good time, you're going to take your dessert home and you're going to enjoy it. Well, I feel like you're so good at that always because I, you know, that is what happened when we went there and you have like a out, it's all outside and you have like a little photo booth, you have a disco ball, you have music, you have lights. It's like very fun, which I feel like even before, of course, before COVID, you're always just good at doing that. You create fun all the time. Like if I came to a, a class at Cheryl's Kitchen and there's a disco ball in the kitchen and there's it's always super fun and you're just so good at creating that environment. Yeah, well, I don't know. I like, I like to have fun. <laughs> I don't <laughs> like to be bored. I'm never bored. I mean, I never bored because I'm always working, but you know, I like to change things up, you know, and that's, I think that's why I enjoy traveling so much because you never know what you're going to get. You go somewhere and you just like walk around and see things and absorb things. And so, yeah, with the Pixelmatic, I want the same thing. Like it can't just be a vending machine. It's got to be experience. So like I put the disco ball up and then after a couple months, I'm like, we need a photo booth, you know, it's just like, what else can I do to make it like an occasion? And people like will line up to use the Pixelmatic. It's like, it was amazing. I I feel very, very, um, very lucky because it's paid by bills and uh, it's worked out. I'm knocking on wood. And a lot of people, you know, especially if you had a restaurant downtown, like that wouldn't have been possible with everything going on last year. So, yeah, I mean, I'm always trying new things. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad that this worked for you. And it seems like, um, you know, you can hang on to it at least until who knows when. So you don't have to keep making a bunch of changes. Oh, it's not going away. Yeah, good. I'm glad. (laughs) So before COVID hit, my family discovered your place and we were coming in there for late night desserts and drinks. And it was super fun. Um, One of the things that I thought was really cool is it seems like there was like chocolate and you could get like pieces of porcelain 
stuff inside of it, if I remember right. I don't remember how I was getting like little shoes and all sorts of different things in my food. It was really cool. I really liked that. That was fun. Yeah. So those are our version of Kinder Eggs. So if you're familiar with Kinder Eggs, they're basically in like every other country in the world, I think, because when you open up a Kinder Egg, there's instructions in about 20 different languages about what the Kinder Egg is. But it's a chocolate egg with dark chocolate on the outside and a layer of white chocolate on the inside. And they always have these fun toys. Like they're not just generic, like McDonald's toys. Like it's a puzzle you have to put together or, you know, it's something that moves or whatever. And they're just so fun. And even as an adult, I love Kinder Eggs. So the Kinder Eggs are banned in the United States. And you could get fined, like bringing them over the border from Canada. Why? So every time I go to Europe, I would I used to bring a bunch. And then it's, they banned them. And I was, I was just going to make it myself. And so I bought the mold. And I had this idea. So also in France, there's a thing called the, uh, the king cake, they call it. And um, it, they put a little toy inside. It's like puff pastry and cream. And then this is for epiphany. And then whoever finds a slice that has a little charm, mm -hmm. like it's king for the day. That's so true. I found a wholesale manufacturing company that makes these charms and they are ridiculous. Like it's like the fashion um, thing of epiphany, like all these designer boutique uh, pastry chefs will go out and design their own charms to put in their king cake for the year. Yeah. So you can get everything, like you said, like a designer shoes, you can get like little clowns, little eclairs, and they're fun for adults and kids. And so that's where I source Super my cool. charms from France and I put them in and we make our own. And yeah, to this day, you can buy them in a Pixomatic. Just yeah. come on down. I'm going to have to come down there and get some. I, so, uh, go ahead, Sarah. I noticed that you were in a very special film called The World's Best Champagne and Sparkling Wine List. Just kidding. That's not what it's called. It's called <laughs> The Kings of Pastry. <laughs> that wasn't me in it. That was who I worked for. Philippe oh, Rocco. you worked for him. Yes. Tell us about that. Did you get to help with it at all? Uh, no. So that film was made years after um, I left France. I trained in France and uh, that was 21 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, when I went to pastry school, uh, my chef was French and, and he just tell me stories. I worked at Pillsbury Bake Off as a test recipe and like growing up in the middle, I said, I thought like, okay, this is what I want to bake because it's more like science. And then I went to this French pastry school and like, oh no, like French pastry, like that is so much better <laughs> than muffins and cookies and scones. And so I was like, do you know anyone in France where I can go study? And um, he arranged for me to go. He's like, okay, just go to this place. <laughs> He'll pick you up at the airport. <laughs> and yeah, it was uh, Philippe Rocca. He's an MOF pastry chef. And what MOF is a Nia Uvia de France is like the top, top of your, um, your career that you can basically get. If you, you pass this crazy regular three-day test. And then if you actually pass, you get the special jacket with a special collar. And so... The guy that I got to work for, not only was an MOF, but he later on became the judge, the head of all the MOFs. So Kings of Pastry, the movie that you're referencing, is showing him judging these other pastry chefs taking this test oh, to become fun. an MOF. And yeah, it's pretty intense. And and it's not like, uh, you know, some of this Food Network TV we hear, we see here where people like arguing and throwing stuff like no, they get choked up for each other. They want each other to succeed. It's not a competition against it. It's like 
let's all work together. One guy, I don't want to give away, but he drops his sugar sculpture and like everybody just like, no, everybody feels for him, you know, because yeah, it's, it's like, uh, it's like a family, the pastry team over there. And I, I remember being working there and there was like rugby players at four in the morning, pulling sugar flowers, you know, something that we would never see here. Uh, yeah, it was very um, inspiring to be there and work for, for him. And I, again, was very lucky to land that position. That's cool. And so after I, you finished school, and did you just come back here and open a restaurant? Or was there other things in between there that happened? So after I finished the school, that's when I went to France. And I um, was there for oh, about five months or so. Um, and then when I left France, I knew I wanted to come to Portland. I was in Portland briefly. Uh, right before I went to the culinary school, actually, no, in between the culinary school and France, and um, it was actually not raining, <laughs> so I, I was like, "This place is beautiful, good music. Uh, the people just seem very open-minded." And to come to the United States and do like you see what I do now all over the place, but 20 years ago, I had to beg people to buy a macaron. <laughs> Nobody knew what it was. Like I was like, "Okay, I put 10 macaron out, and maybe." I'll sell them today. <laughs> and it was like, nope. And now, like, if we were open, we'd sell like 200 a day easily. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I knew I wanted to come back here because I did not want to go back to the Midwest. Um, I, I don't like the cold. Uh, That's and I just where came I'm here. from, too. Uh, St. Paul. St. Paul. Okay, I went to university there. Cold mm. and windy. It is cold. <laughs> don't like it. <laughs> nope. But yeah, I came here and I, and I started at the farmer's market um, because I was like, I need a test market. And then I also had a job, a catering company. And so I would go to this job. It started at 5 a.m. every day, ride my bike there. And then I come home. And then on Saturdays, actually, I was doing a couple of markets, but Saturday was the big one. I would come home. I would take a breather for an hour and then I would just start baking. And a lot of times I would just be up all night long. <laughs> it was just me baking all the stuff at the farmer's market. And if you want to talk about a labor of love, <laughs> and I didn't have a car and I didn't have any money or I'd have a car. So I had a car. And so like I would go to work at 5 a.m., come home on my bike, take a breather, start baking for the farmer's market. Usually finish like around five in the morning or something, maybe six, depending on how busy it was. And then I would ride my bike to the car share company, get the car, then drive the car back to the house, load it up, drive the car with the stuff to the farmer's market, unload, set it up, then drive the car back to the bike, get the bike, bike back to the farmer's market, then stay there for X amount of hours selling this stuff. Then I would do the reverse. I get back on the bike, go get the car, drive the car to pick up the stuff, and then drive the car to the house, unload the stuff, and then (laughs) drive the car back to the parking spot, get on the bike and bike home. And then wow. people would be like, let's go to the bar. And I'm like, sure. And then I'd fall asleep in the bar. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but you're you're like a do. wonder woman. <laughs> you're a hard working woman. And yes, she is. I love to hear that beginning of, because I didn't know you then, but I love to hear the beginning of um, how 
intense that is to do because I think that's how a lot of our um, business owners are in that space of it being their first year. And it all is just so much because you're doing it on your own. Um, But it's nice to hear that you started that way as well. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back and we'll hear about um, the location that Cheryl's in and then some of the amazing things that she makes. We'll be right back. Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and the Food Innovation Center are proud sponsors of Meaningful Marketplace. With a mission to serve all Oregonians, we are committed to giving voice to those whose food and agricultural stories are not always heard. By providing access and opportunity for a more diverse and just food system, because food brings people together. Okay, Cheryl, tell us, how did you get into that crazy location there on Burnside? That is one of the most cool buildings. It's so eclectic. Tell us a little bit more about where your location is. Yeah, so at 2225 East Burnside, uh, it used to be a daycare called Little Footsteps. And uh, I, you know, like I said, I've been doing this for 20 years now. And at a certain point, I was just like, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. And so I put my business on the market in 2007. And then we all know what happened to the economy like shortly after that. And no one could get a loan to buy a business. Yeah. And here I was like the person that wanted to quit her job, but was stuck with the job. And then all these other people wanting jobs, but there were no jobs. I was just like, what is going on? So, you know, I just had to stay with it. But I was like, I got to have a plan B. So my plan B was, okay, let's try to save some money and buy a building. Because there was some positives that came out of the 2008 financial crisis, like interest rates went down really low and uh, properties were not that expensive. So I, uh, my leases were running out on both spaces because I had one on North Williams and on Division, which if you look at those spaces now, I can just only imagine my rent would be double what I was paying back then. Um, and the opportunity, this, this daycare just <laughs> popped up on the market and I was like, oh my God, it's the playground is outdoor seating. <laughs> like this is amazing. Um, and again, very fortunate. I was able to scrape together enough money and then I moved. Uh, yeah, I moved in this space and I told myself, okay, here we are. You just built out this whole restaurant again for like the fourth time. So I've had like four or five different restaurants and I, was like, I can't do this again. I'm going to give it 10 years and 10 years utilize the space. And August 22nd, 2022, exactly 10 years from when I opened the doors here, I'm retiring. Okay, that's less than a year away now. A little wrench called COVID just shoved itself in there. Um, I still think I'm going to retire, though. <laughs> I said, that's, that's been your plan. I remember talking to you about it before, mm-hmm. before COVID happened. And I really... I mean, if that's what you want to do, I hope that you can do it and make it happen. I think like buying a building is a very smart choice. I know not everyone can do that. um, But I think that for you, I think that was like one of the smartest things to do at that time, you know? Yes. Yep. Uh, And with COVID, with the COVID thing, uh, I'm very lucky to not, to be my own landlord because I can only imagine the conversations people were having with their landlords as restaurant owners. Do you talk to yourself? (laughs) You talk to yourself like, okay, Cheryl, today you have to do this. (laughs) Yeah. Like, come on, give me a little leniency here. That's okay. 
can I put a pixomatic up front? Sure, do it. Put two, actually. Put two. <laughs> well, and you had a location on Hawthorne. That was like, um, was that before you had the Williams one and the Division one? So I started with Division, uh, and then I opened a place uh, with John Tabota that owns Luce across the street for me. Uh, we had a tapas bar, and this is tapas bars like, before everybody had a top <laughs> and we call it bar pastiche. And we were like really trying to bottle San Sebastian where people throw their napkins on the floor. And the idea was he would do savory. I would do sweet. And then we co-mingle them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So not everything works out, like I said, but <laughs> when we decided to close that, I said, I would take it over, uh, run out the lease and make it a pick. So there's a little period of time there. Then I actually had three fixed histories. Um, oh. Yeah, that was not fun. <laughs> Two <laughs> That's was, a lot. Okay. That, you have to have so many employees to have three different restaurants. And then there's, yeah. there's like with every different space, there's a different crisis happening at each one. So it's just like so much to manage. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting and it's so, it's just so weird. I feel like now here I am in my restaurant, like basically by myself with one employee helping me bake. Where I was twenty some years ago it's in like my restaurant before I could have hired an employee. Yeah, and it's just so bizarre. I had because this professor, when I, professor, art professor, who used to say that everything goes in a big circle. I yeah, feel like it's I'm like that. It. Yeah, I feel like it's like that for a lot of us. I mean, um, you know, me as well, or like even when. It, the people that we've talked to in the last year and a half, when you have had a business for, I would say over 10 years and you start out where you do everything, it's really circled around to where we're kind of back like that. You know, I'm back like that too. I, it's just, you know, my husband and I, and it's very challenging to try to have employees during this time and have so many things to manage because it's just like almost impossible to do it. And, um, but the cool thing about it is that like, we're so badass that we know how to do that. So we can just run things ourselves if we have to. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of nice. <laughs> uh, Cause so, and I have the two places, everybody, everybody I know that has a restaurant, they're like, I'm going to open a second one. And from experience, I'm like, no, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Cause you can't be two places at the same time. And yeah, it's more revenue, but it's not necessarily more profit and it's more headaches. So I did it. I was like, I'm going to open a second one. And then I opened a second one. And for a second, I had the third one. And when I moved here and was able to consolidate down, back down to one, I was like, wow, this is so nice. Like, I feel like I'm back in control of things. I can see all everything going on. Like, I'm here every day. Um, and this is, you know, when we're still open. I was just, I, mean, I really like this. I feel like a spy restaurant again. They're not like, uh, not out of control. And then, yeah, then you go even further and you close and, you lose all your employees and it's really like really back to day one. <laughs> yeah. I heard a lot of the folks that were working in service are doing other things. Now, if you decided to bring people back, do you think your same staff would even be available, Cheryl? I know my, my face is just, yes. Um, and they come in to help me from time to time last Christmas. God knows what reason was our busiest Christmas in 20 years. I mean, I was here, for 36 hours straight, making people's Gush oh. Noel. It was insane. <laughs> and had they not come back and helped me, I I would have just had to turn down orders. So 
they are dedicated, but at a certain point in time, I'm going to have to have full-time hours for them because uh, unemployment benefits are out. As far as front of house staff, front of house staff goes, like my manager is really dedicated and I love her and I don't want to lose her, but I just, right now I can't open with the Delta thing. I just, I don't trust it because I don't want to be one of those restaurants that goes forward and back, forward and back. Okay. Now we're takeout. Now we're dining. Nope. Now we're outside only. Now we're takeout again. I, I, I don't want to do that. Like it's too much stress. Well, and every time those choices are made, it's expensive for the people that are making the choices. So every, you know, people are call it pivots, but it's like, it's like recreating a whole new restaurant and a whole new experience. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's expensive to train people. It's expensive to come up with those systems. It's really difficult, but I think, you know, I love that what you're doing and that it's working for you. And it just makes me so excited that you still create these really fun experiences. One time, Sarah Masoni, I did a a book event with Cheryl up in Seattle. Ooh. And, um, and I, you know, we, we all brought food to go with our books and, and Cheryl showed up and she like rolled in and all of a sudden she's building out this like record player that would spin. And she was like frosting cakes or pastries. I mean, I'm probably using the wrong terminology. She was probably doing something much fancier than frosting a cake, but, but she did it on this little record player and it was so fun and people thought it was so cool. And I, and I didn't even, I mean, we kind of knew each other, but I was like, mm. We're going to be friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a recipe from my book, Bottom French Pastry, where I pipe. Uh, it's a French technique. It's called the turbolon. And you you pipe while the record's playing, and it creates this slight spiral effect with the uh, buttercream or whatever, meringue. Uh, but yeah, that's, I mean, I'm a pastry chef, but at, equally, I'm a businesswoman. And when I was even... Uh, a kid, I would have so many different businesses because I never had an allowance. My my parents split up, and I, we were just hoodlums. Like we were just on the street doing whatever we want. And I was like, I need to buy this. I wanted a cabbage patch kit, right? I always had to buy the stuff I wanted. I would sell um, uh, like stickers at school. I had this business with cabbage patch kids were really popular. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just, you just, where there's a will, there's a way. That's like, I was the get my stuff. I'll figure out how to do it. I brought that record player to that event, knowing that people will stop and look. And that's what I do with the Pixelmatic. That's I, I try to get your attention. That's why when we are open, we're always having events because there's always something to write up in the paper and they grab your attention because sometimes after being open for 20 years, people can forget about you. And uh, that's, that's not happening at Pix. I don't think anyone forgets about you. <laughs> and, I think, and I think you do a great job of always making things fun. I even attended a class and I, I never really bake anything. I'm not good at it. But um, when I came to the class, you like taught us how to make, I think it was pastry cream in a microwave. And I was yeah. like, whoa, I could probably do this, you know? And we made these beautiful, like, I can't remember what they were. They were like these little hazelnut heart shaped um, cakes that we, we put like this purple, beautiful glaze on and, and, and put gold on it. It was like the fanciest thing I'd ever made. And then I brought it home for my daughter and she was like, you made this? Like you can do this all the time. I'm like, probably. I mean, Cheryl just taught me how I could probably do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like that's what I try to do with my books because people look at, at the like the cover of my book it's this crazy fruit tart with the zen mousse and 
And they look at it and they're like, I could never do that. It was like, but that's not true. Like, it's just, you know, take a deep breath. Like pastry is scary to people for some reason. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't need to be. And I've really pushed the boundaries during COVID, like running out of time and stuff. I was like, yeah, let's just throw this pastry cream in a microwave and see what happens. Like, it, it's it's really not as intimidating as people think. For example, I do this, this trick where... Um, and if you go to modernfrenchpastry.com, you can see some videos. I call them parlor tricks, but everybody has heard like when you make a meringue, you should make sure there's no fat in your bowl, like nothing. And people get scared of this. They're so scared. They like wipe all, they clean it like five times. And I take a stick of butter and I do this at my, my demos too, um, when I do book demos. And I rub the bowl with butter, like a lot of butter. And then I crack three egg whites in it and I make a meringue. And it just blows people's minds. <laughs> I was like, you're thinking too hard. Like, just forget what everybody told you about pastry and just, you know, go in there and have fun. I think, I think that's a good way to do it. And I want, um, will you tell people about your two books? Because I do think that you make um, pastry approachable in both of them. So will you tell people about your books and, and what you set out to do with those? Yeah. So the first book came out as Modern French Pastry. Um, as innovative techniques, tools, and designs. So there's so many books that are just like, here's another eclair, here's like Path of Shoe, here's how you make a lemon tart. And I didn't want to do that because really when you go to France, like people, it's all about originality. You can be the more original person and come up with a new design, a new technique. And so I was just trying to show people like pastry doesn't have to be just about plastics. And so I take, you know, the Path of Shoe, but I make it into something like in my new book, I make it into a little thing that looks like a clementine. If if you're if you look at it for a second, you think it's a piece of fruit, but it's actually a cream puff with a clementine mm. pastry cream. So like, I like a lot of colors. I like a lot of uh, different flavor profiles, different um, uh, ingredients and and shapes. Like French pastry is all about layers, layers of texture, layers of flavors, layers of you know, different colors and stuff. And so it's not, when you take a bite of a French pastry, it's not just like uh, cake and frosting. You get like soft cake, then maybe a little bit of uh, rum with the cake and then something creamy and then maybe some caramelized hazelnuts. But you put that all in your mouth at the same time and it's just magical. And it's it's a, a bit like if you're into wine, you know, you have your wine that just tastes like strawberries. Or you have your wine that tastes like strawberries and then a, a hint of herbal something, something. And, and it makes you, you just, you stop and think about it. You don't just drink it, you stop and think about it. Like, wow, this is really interesting. And that's what I think French pastry is. Um, it just, it makes you stop and think. And, and it's art form as well. It's everything we do at PIX. Uh, when you buy your dessert, we don't just take a knife and cut up a cake and give you a big slab on a plate. You know, like a wedding cake. Okay, yeah, it's beautiful. But then when they serve it to you, you just get this thing that's fallen over and crumbly. That's not very impressive. So like in France, when you go and get yourself a dessert, you get the whole dessert. Like it's a miniature version of the larger size that you are. Because because you deserve (laughs) not a fallen over piece of cake. You deserve a piece (laughs) of art that should be like in a... In a jewelry store, but instead no you more nine house. by fourteen cakes at my house. <laughs> there you go. Forget that sheet cake. 
Well, you brought up wine and I want to talk about, I mean, yes. no one can, will be able to see you on this podcast, but we can see you and you're yes. sitting in front of this wall of beautiful bottles. Champagne. I'm guessing it's champagne and sparkling wine, right? Yeah. It sure is. And you um, constantly are winning awards for your um, collection, for your list, for your wine list. Tell, let's tell people about that. So uh, I love champagne. <laughs> Some people buy shoes. Uh, I buy champagne. Um, yeah, I don't know. I got into it maybe 12 years ago. Uh, when I started Pix, I, I was in the Belgian beers. I didn't know anything about wine. Like, seriously, I have had the rep come and like, I need some wine on the list. Can you give me a couple of bottles? Tell me what size glass to put in. Is it totally cold? Or not? I didn't know anything. But, you know, like I you just get interested in something and uh, sparkling wine, really. Um, I just there's something about it. I love it. I, it's the bubbles. It's the it's the aging on the leaves that gives it more complexity. But so we have amassed a collection of I don't know, is it like 800 champagnes and then another 500 sparkling wines. It's pretty crazy. But in, for me, it's. It's about seeking out something different. It's about seeking out terroir and small producers that actually have passion behind what they're making. Uh, you won't find Veuve Cucot on my list. You won't find a lot of the big names, the grand marks, um, not necessarily because they don't make good wine, but you can find them other places. And I'm trying to just like what we do with everything, with our pastries, our chocolates, like I, to do something a little unique um, and different, you know, still higher quality. And then I try to also make uh, our wine list affordable as much as possible. So Pix has always been kind of a place for everybody. So recently, not recently, seven years ago, <laughs> we won uh, best champagne and sparkling wine list in the world by the London publication, The World Fine Wine. Um, that blew my mind. And then we won it again and then again and again. And last year we won um, for the seventh year in a row, world's best champagne sparkling wine list. And we're beating out people like, like Eric Repair, like like these names of famous chefs that you see on TV. But if you've been to my spot, we don't have white tablecloths. We don't like it's 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 a quirky little place, you know. So I think that's that's really cool. It's <laughs> so, super cool. It's so cool. And I I feel like over the years, you know, I have been going to your spot wherever it has been. And um, you know, when I first was going, I was a social worker. I didn't have a lot of money. And um, that's even where I went when um I was getting married. So this was like 17 years ago or whatever, six, I don't know, 15 years ago, whatever it is. And, um, but I went with my ladies in my wedding party because it was something that we could do where we could buy a little tapas and we could buy a little pastry and we could have a glass of sparkling wine and we could afford it, you know? And so it's, it's still that way, even like to take my daughter somewhere and be able to, to be able to buy her a whole pastry that's just for her. And it feels really special. And, um, you just, do such a great job of making people feel special, important, fancy, but, um, you know, you don't have to be in one of those restaurants that has white tablecloths and is very expensive. We can all do yeah. it. And I think that's so cool. That is very cool. So, it's a dream. <laughs> so this, this year on November 1st, there'll be another wineless awards. And uh, we're going for win number eight. <laughs> and last year, actually, so they have this amazing ceremony they started two years ago in London. And I got to go last two years. But then with COVID, 
they didn't have it last year. And so I'm sitting here right where I am <laughs> with some wine, watching the Zoom. It was a Zoom, some of the platform awards. And there's, we won Champagne Sparkling Wine List of the World again. Uh, that's great. And then they're like, okay, now we want to list uh, wine list of the world. We're going to announce the wine list of the world. But this year, we have two winners. We have one with the grand list like we normally do. And then we have this other one. This list is like a controlled passion project. <laughs> and so we couldn't decide between the two. And I'm just like watching like, oh, I wonder who that is. Like maybe it's terroir in New York. And the winner is, and they're like, pick this for me. And I just like fell off my bar stool. How cool. Why couldn't we be in London for this? So yeah. Uh, and then, and, uh, and then they, and you moved into something called the Champions League. And then they, uh, then you compete within the, the Champions League. So, yeah, it's just nice to be recognized for stuff, you know, like there's not everybody gives out awards for everything. And so when you are recognized, it's it's nice. It feels good. It's good. And it's great to have that recognition so that you have the notoriety. So when people come to Portland and they want to visit somewhere cool, they'll know you from the list that you're on, the things that you've won. When it's we cool. open. <laughs> yeah. That's the downside about the Pixomatic. We can't sell alcohol in the vending machine. Oh, you can't? OLCC. OLCC rules. No one to check the ID. Oh. Cheryl, do you have any advice for aspiring food entrepreneurs? Oh, well, you know, things change every day. I mean, let's just pretend we're not in COVID and mm-hmm. things change every day. So I guess that would be first... My first piece of advice is be ready to adapt all the time. Don't just think you're going to have your business model. You're going to open the doors and you're going to roll because as soon as you open the doors, the next day you're going to change something. And the next day you're going to change something. The next week you're going to change something. And the next year you're going to change something. And then you get a pandemic and then you're going to change your whole business model completely. So you just always got to adapt. And when you adapt, then you're also like recreating yourself. It's more interesting for you. It's more interesting for your employees. It's uh, more interesting for the public. Um, yeah, and then adapt and be prepared to work hard. Um, and don't do it if your heart's not into it. Because if your heart's yeah. not into it, then you won't. You'll be miserable, number one. And you won't probably won't succeed because... It'll be a struggle, won't it? Yeah. I think yeah. that's true. I think that's good advice for now and also not now. <laughs> it's really, it's all, it all makes so much sense. Uh, we always like to send people to you directly. And so um, what does that mean for people? How can they best support you right now if they live here in Portland and then also if they don't? So two things you could do. Um, if you live here in Portland, please come by the Pixomatic. It's open 24 hours a day. It's contactless vending at its finest. So you can buy desserts, macarons, chocolates, uh, anything and everything, all hours of the day. It's so convenient <laughs> and safe. Uh, the other way is we can do special orders over the phone. So if, you, if you're having a birthday or maybe it's just one day and you feel like it's something right day for you, you call us up. We do a free range pickups at the door. Uh, if you don't live here, my suggestion would be to purchase either Modern French Pastry or my newest book, Petite Patisserie. And if you go to modernfrenchpastry.com, you can see pictures of every item in the book. Um, and basically at home, you can recreate some of the desserts we make here, uh, like our blue cheese truffles, the Royale are mm. in the book. Um, and then there's just other fun stuff. And, and 
you know, how much sourdough bread can you make? <laughs> like, right. It's like try <laughs> these pastry and, and so and I, I try, try to make it easy. Uh, I, I give a lot of detail and I'm always here for you. If you have a question about the recipe, you just hit the contact and I will come help you. Uh, I won't by your side, but it will be close enough. <laughs> That's lovely. Well, I um, hate to say this, ladies, but we are out of time. I mean, that went by so fast. I feel like yes. um, I, Sarah, did you have any final questions for Cheryl? No, but I, I am going to be swinging by in the middle of the night when I have a craving for some French patisserie. <laughs> <laughs> do that. It's such a good idea. I've done it where I'm supposed to bring something over for a brunch and I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to make anything at midnight. I'm going to go by the dramatic and I'll just I mean, seriously, it's lately. So I, much better. <laughs> I've been waking up in the middle of the night. I may as well just put my bathrobe on and drive over there and get a snack. You should. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone should. Breakfast well, of Champions, creme brulee at, you know, 7 a.m. on a Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so wonderful. wonderful. Well, Cheryl, thank you for coming on the show today. It was so good to see you and hear about all the wonderful things you do. I love it, love it, love it. I do have one final question. Are you going to be making the um, Halloween chocolates this year? Okay, so the trick-or-treaters, the little ghosts? Yeah. Yes, I'm okay. going to be doing those. But, but... Uh, so for those of you who haven't seen them, there is a little, uh, little ghost with a marzipan sheet. And it's got a pail as they're going out to go trick-or-treaters, but they're meant to be like little kids hiding to dress as ghosts. I make these every year, but this year they came out in my book, Petite Patisserie. So you can also make them at home. Perfect. And oh, I give you treat. all the tips and tricks. So yeah, don't worry either. You don't want to make them. That's okay. <laughs> I'll make them for you. But they will be in the Pixelmatic probably starting uh, in a week or so. Perfect. They're my fave. We love Halloween in my house, so <laughs> I'll be I'll be visiting you for sure. Excellent. We record Missoni and Marshall live every week. You can find us on our favorite podcast platform, iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you to our audio engineer, Alon, and our production assistant, Chelsea. And if you want to be a guest on the show, you can message us at either of our Instagrams. And we will be back next week. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Bye. Bye, Bye for now. Market of Choice is a proud sponsor of Meaningful Marketplace. As a family-owned organ grocer for 42 years, Market of Choice strives to inspire, mentor, and assist a diverse group of local producers and foster equity in our communities. With 11 stores in Oregon, Market of Choice supports these craft makers as well as farmers, fisher folk, and ranchers by bringing more than 7,000 local products to market. Together, we form a sustainable, community-based food system that serves our great state. To learn more, go to marketofchoice.com. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.